As we begin our time this morning then, let us read one more time from Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And as we close, we'll be finishing with verses 8 through 14. Ecclesiastes 12, 8 through 14. There we find these final words. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. And he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of the wise men are like goads. The master of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. In conclusion, when all has been heard is, fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. This is the word of God. Please be seated. In a popular song written by John Lennon, a famous once Beatle wrote these words about the ultimate meaning of life. He said, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. It's fine writing, isn't it? Makes for a good song. And the words of John Lennon here are fairly familiar, if not specifically in those words, in the meaning behind them. For in a song like Imagine, Lennon and other people like him are expressing the ultimate meaning of life as it is interpreted by, I think, most people in our society, at least on an everyday basis. For as you already heard in these lyrics, the, the lyricist says, let's ignore for a moment this, this concept of heaven and hell. Just put it aside and, and for the love of God, although he would not say God, of course, let's just love each other. Let's just come together as one. Let us live for today. Let us be at peace with our brothers and sisters. Lenin's dream of world peace is one that at first glance seems nice, seems like a sweet thought. But if you really press in on it, and honestly, if you really press in on, on the ultimate meaning of life as it's presented in any popular culture reference, you see that really this belief is quite trite. In fact, it's downright offensive. Because while it sounds nice to say, let's forget the idea of hell, the fact of the matter is, is no one really wants to believe that. Because if you remove hell, you remove justice. And so it's one thing to say, let's, let's ignore the idea that someone I love might go to hell. But if you start saying that, well, then you remove any idea of eternal judgment against those who are truly wicked in every sense of the word. As one apologist I heard once said, if you're doing this, then you imagine there's no hell beneath the floors of Auschwitz. There's no judgment for Pol Pot. There's no judgment for Hitler. There's no really negative consequences for anything these wicked men and other wicked men and women do. Is that something anyone really wants? The belief that there's no judgment? That there's no ultimate consequences? 
In the same way, the idea of getting rid of this idea of heaven might sound nice to some because it, it focuses our, our focus on the present, but, but press in, and again, you see just how cheap that is because that assumes your present is happy. It's enjoyable. I've said before that years ago there was a, an atheist uh, advertising campaign in the UK that, that went along with this title, um, God probably doesn't exist, so let's let everyone just go ahead and be happy. And the critique that they received was, again, it, it presupposes the idea that the world is generally a happy place, but it's not. And so for the vast majority of the world, throughout the vast majority of, of history, you remove the idea of heaven, and that's downright cruel. Because it tells you all you have is here. This miserably dark and sick world. Now many people in our culture especially like to believe that the lyrics of a song like Imagine are ultimately helpful and hopeful to all of us. But the reality is that the meaning of life as it is given to us in Scripture is far deeper than that and far more hopeful. And as we come to the end of Ecclesiastes, it is that meaning that we're digging into. For as we look at Ecclesiastes 12 for one last time, we are one last time looking and considering this message of the preacher. One last time we're trying to learn from from his method, from what he is saying, and one last time hopefully we will walk away with an understanding of the entire meaning of all of this, both Ecclesiastes and our entire existence. And my prayer at the end of it all, of course, is that Ecclesiastes might not be a book about meaninglessness, but a book that we realize is actually full of meaning. For it tells us that even in the midst of a supposedly meaningless world, every second we have is a gift. Everything we do is packed with meaning if we just understand the purposes that Solomon had in mind. With that being said, let me open our time in prayer as we prepare to delve into these words of Solomon. Pray with me, if you will. Father in heaven, as we come to the end of Ecclesiastes, we come to the end of of a difficult study, God. A, A study that has been filled with words that are painful at times to read through, especially in the midst of just what a painful year it's been for so many people. But as we come to the end of this text today, Lord, I pray that we might not, go, not walk away feeling pained and frustrated. But rather, might we walk away with a proper sense of the meaning behind all of it, God. God, I pray that as believers, we might not ever attempt to offer some trite words of comfort to a suffering world around us, Lord. But might we always speak the truth. Might we learn from Solomon and speak it in a manner that is lovely, in a manner that is glorifying to you. And God, in our own daily lives, Lord, might we not be so quick to buy into the empty meanings of life that are driven into our minds by the culture in which we live. But might we be people that are full of meaning, full of intention in all that we say and all that we do. As always, God, I pray for those who are here who do not yet know you, God. Save their souls today. Might they understand that they are sitting on the precipice of eternity and that there is no second to waste. God, might all this time we spend here be glorifying to you, be edifying to your people, God. It is in your precious Son, Jesus Christ's name, that we pray all these things. Amen. As we begin our text this morning, we begin with the most familiar portion of the text. That is, the preacher's message that he once again gives as a sort of first conclusion. Once again, if you read there at Ecclesiastes 12, verse 8, we find those familiar words. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, All is vanity. If you've been with us for more than this morning, these words are probably very familiar to you. In fact, you might be tempted to say, yes, Solomon, we get it. 
because he's been saying basically the same message over and over and over again. And he began all the way back in Ecclesiastes 1. For an opening, this book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon opens with those same words. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And as we've discussed throughout these chapters, we've seen that this concept of vanity, that characteristic of life under the sun, speaks to this, this idea of meaninglessness. That idea that life is but a breath. We are here and then we are gone. And so as Solomon has, has pressed in on us throughout this book, we have seen that when you view life in, uh, entirely as that which is lived under the sun, it all appears to be pretty much meaningless, pretty much worthless. And if you're like me, these words strike you as a bit harsh at first. And, and all of us would be prone to say, well, come on, Solomon, that, that surely there's some meaning in this life. But as we've seen for chapter after chapter after chapter, Solomon has sought to just deconstruct that understanding of this life. He's exhaustively demonstrated the fact that we really cannot place any hope in this world, for everything is passing. And so for the past however many months we've explored Ecclesiastes 1 through 12, we've seen him take these common experiences and, and shine a light on those experiences and show us, and show us see, you, you can't hope in this. And so whether it is that experience and that reality of death, something that Solomon has, has spoken of constantly throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, that inevitable ending that none of us can escape, that inevitable ending of which Solomon wrote just earlier in chapter 12, as he speaks of an eternal home, as he speaks of man returning to the dust, whether it is that inevitable end or if it is any of the experiences we face on a daily basis. For even before we get to that point of death, Solomon has explored these many other areas of frustration that every single person faces. And so we've seen many of those experiences. Solomon writes, for instance, of, of the prevalency of oppression, of injustice. If you recall, back in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, he speaks a great deal of this. For he speaks of labor that has gone unpaid. He speaks of unjust rulers who take, care of the, who take advantage of the poor. Later on in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and 8, he speaks of the injustice and oppression that, that evil kings bring upon their people. And so Solomon, as he looks about the world around him, he, he sees, well, the reality is most people experience this. So certainly you can't find everlasting joy in a world that is full of oppression, full of injustice. In a similar way, as Solomon continues to exhaustively explore the world around him, he speaks of the reality of dissatisfaction amongst humanity. And so you can imagine a person who says, well, I haven't been treated unjustly, and, and I'm trying to find success. Solomon says even with that, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much success you have. It doesn't matter how much money you earn over your life. The fact is, you can never be satisfied with those things. You'll remember those familiar words back in Ecclesiastes 6. Verses 1 and following, he says, There's an evil which I've seen under the sun, and it is prevalent among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that his soul lacks nothing of all he desires, yet God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and a severe affliction. Solomon there speaks of the wealthy, of the successful, but people who, who can't enjoy it. And so even those people that escape oppression... 
and even enjoy supposedly earthly success while they're dissatisfied. Beyond that, beyond that material experience, Solomon also explores man's inability to to even understand any of this. And so again, even if, if maybe you're fine with not being financially successful, maybe you escape oppression, escape injustice, well, you're still going to be just as confused as the rest of us. This again is an experience that Solomon has explored time and time and time again. We see this set forth very clearly in a passage like Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11, in which Solomon, speaking of God, says, He has made everything appropriate in his time. He has also set eternity in their hearts, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. And so whether it is death, or the experience of oppression, or the experience of dissatisfaction, or just the general experience of confusion, Solomon says, at no point in time will you be able to find lasting happiness in this life under the sun. It's all fleeting. It will all be taken away from you very quickly. And as we've seen for the past number of months, we understand that these observations were by no means limited to that ancient Near Eastern world in which Solomon lived, were they? For every single thing that Solomon speaks to, every single thing that Solomon shines his light on, is still just as easily observed in our own culture today. For last time I checked, death is still an inevitable end. We can't escape that. Last time I checked, we live in a world that is still marked by a variety of forms of, of oppression and injustice. These things will always exist for Mankind is wicked, and when people get into authority, they will oppress those underneath them. That is just the experience. In the same way, we can see the dissatisfaction that marks the hearts and minds of the vast majority of our culture. It is hard to find someone that is genuinely content, regardless of their financial success. If anything, the the culture, the society of America, is perhaps a, a tremendous picture of exactly what Solomon is saying. For we live in a culture that has experienced great wealth, great success, far more so than the vast majority of the world, and yet we live in a society that is just discontent and frustrated, more so now than perhaps ever before, it seems, or at least in our own lifetime. In addition to all these things, we all understand that we live in a world that is still just as confused as ever before. We live in a world that is flailing about, trying to find happiness in this life, trying to to find that lasting peace and yet experiencing nothing but turmoil, nothing but frustration. And so as painful as it is to hear the words of Solomon, as frustrating as it is to come to the end of Ecclesiastes 12 and see it again, this preacher's message that tells us all is vanity. Every person, at least at a certain level, has to understand, he's right, isn't he? Again, consider how far removed we are from the world of Solomon and yet see the same problems still exist today. Man never gets past them. It's all this endless cycle as Solomon has demonstrated time and time again. And this message, as painful as it is, has been made abundantly clear, if nothing else, more so in 2020 than ever before, hasn't it? As we've said so many times in this study, 2020 is perhaps a year in which not a lot of people are going to be saying, I don't know, Solomon, life is pretty good. We we understand that life is difficult. And yet, despite that difficulty, it still is just as important for us to hear that message now because, let's face it, all of us are prone to forget that fact the moment things get better. 
the moment things start looking up, we will all be tempted to place our hope in this world, will we not? The second a vaccine comes about, and you see this already, people are thinking, well, that's it, virus done. And people assume that everything will just be back to normal immediately, but it's not the case. You look at the response of so many people in our nation with respect to the, the most recent election. And there's people who are so hopeful for, for change, so hopeful for peace, that they assume that, that electing just a few new officials will magically solve all of this, all the disunity this nation faces. But it won't. People will still be just as unhappy, just as frustrated. And so we, even in the midst of struggling, are, are helped by this message of Solomon because we, like the people in Solomon's day, are prone to place our hope far too much in this world. And so again, as painful as this message is, it is so incredibly helpful and needed every single day in our lives. And yet, as difficult as that message is, as true as it is, as much as there is to learn from that message, we must continue to press forward. For to a certain extent, we've, we've explored this message already. And yet, as we continue to press forward in Ecclesiastes 12, in verses 9 through 14, we see that the learning has not yet stopped. The lessons we're supposed to learn from this have not ceased with this final reference to the vanity of life. For beyond hearing that message of the preacher one last time, we also see that there's something to be learned from the preacher's method. That is how he spoke this message. Again, look with me, if you will, at verses 9 through 12, where we see this method highlighted. There we have this new voice step in, and some people argue this is perhaps someone other than Solomon. I think it's just Solomon taking a step outside of himself and considering what's been done. And there in verses 9 through 12, we read, In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. And he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned, the writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. As true as it is to say that the world is hopeless, and as true as we might be in, in telling people and reminding people, you know what, life is just hard. There's something to be learned from the fact that, that Solomon does much more than just that, doesn't he? And in verses 9 through 10 in particular, we see just the brilliance of, of the method of the preacher be brought out. For we understand that, that as painful as the message of Ecclesiastes has been, there's a certain beauty and brilliance to this book. A brilliance and, and practicality that I think a lot of times we miss because we are so familiar with the text. Consider, for instance, this language in verses 9 through 10 where he speaks of the preacher carefully seeking out knowledge, pondering these things, carefully arranging proverbs, using words that are delightful, words that are true. We see from these words just this, this meticulous effort that Solomon put into presenting his argument. And again, this is something we could easily look past because it seems that it's so repetitive. And yet, as we go through the, the chapters of Ecclesiastes, we see how carefully this argument is made. And so the author speaks of how the preacher 
carefully collects all of these proverbs, carefully and meticulously words everything in a way that that is most appealing, that is most effective. This is not the only collection of proverbs, as many of you already know from Solomon. Most famously, we have the book of Proverbs. But it helps to note, perhaps, that in passages like 1 Kings 4.32, we learn that Solomon wrote around 3,000 of these proverbs. 3,000 proverbs. Solomon took a great amount of time throughout the course of his life to not simply speak truth, but speak it in, in this eloquent manner. And these short, pithy sayings that, that can be remembered, that can be easily applied. Just as he was meticulous in, in presenting these Proverbs, we also are reminded there in verse 10 of how the preacher sought to find delightful words. Delightful, beautiful words. Maybe not the type of language you would think of when you think of Ecclesiastes. And yet, if we're honest, when we really start examining the text, we've seen so many examples of of the beauty, the masterful use of language by Solomon. The, the example that sticks out to me most clearly is just that which we covered last week. If you were with us, you remember in verses 1 through really 5 of Ecclesiastes 12, Solomon describes the process of getting old. And in describing that, he could have said, you know what, you get old, your body falls apart and you die. He could have said that. And ultimately, that would have been the same message. But he doesn't, does he? He paints this beautiful picture of an ornate home with, with all of its servants, with all of its workers, and he, he speaks of that home slowly falling into disrepair. Why does he do that? Well, he does it because it forces us to slow down. It forces us to see aging as something more than just a pain. It, it forces us to see the, the artistry that is involved. It forces us to see the beauty in the life that is being lost. Time and time again throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher does this. He speaks poetically. He speaks beautifully. And this is not just an observation or, or an impression that is to be made by, uh, on believers because we, we live in a culture and we live in a world that has demonstrated a, a certain level of, of appreciation for this text as well. I mean, if you really start looking for references to the language of Ecclesiastes, I think many of us would be shocked by how commonly this book is cited by believers and unbelievers alike. We referenced earlier on in our study with that famous song, um, Turn, 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 right? There's a season, turn, turn, turn. This is the language directly quoted from the uh, the Beatles, directly quoted from Ecclesiastes, from Solomon. That is perhaps the most familiar pop culture reference. But the use of Ecclesiastes goes well beyond one song from the 60s. It's seen in Ernest Hemingway's book, The Sun Also Rises, a title taken directly from Ecclesiastes. It's seen in another very famous book, Fahrenheit 451, by Ray Bradbury, one of my favorite books. And in that book, one of the main characters has memorized the book of Ecclesiastes for it is seen as so essential to understanding the world. Right? We, we see famous uh, pop culture icons even of today, although I'm dating myself, but people like Bono, the lead singer of U2, who refers to Ecclesiastes as being his favorite book, the most brilliant book to read. Time and time again throughout world history, you can find politicians, poets, songwriters, whatever it is, whatever field, referencing Ecclesiastes. Why do they do that? They do it because there's, 
there's a brilliance to the words of Solomon. There's a beauty to the words of Solomon, and, and even unbelievers can recognize that. Even unbelievers can see something precious that is contained in these texts, even if they don't fully understand it. In a similar way, just as Solomon meticulously works to present a beautiful text, we've also seen how how there's something incredibly practical to this book as well, isn't there? For despite all the hopeless references to how how vain everything is, Solomon also packs this book full of just basic practical advice that can be easily applied by anyone of any age, any background. Every single one of us would be wise to put into practice all the teachings of Solomon here in Ecclesiastes. And again, that practical advice can be applied to people regardless of their faith. Regardless of whether or not they believe in the final conclusion, they can take some solace and some encouragement in being reminded of of redeeming the time, using their time wisely. They can find some encouragement of responding to authority when authority figures are are oppressing them. There's to be wisdom to be found in, in his language about marriage and other relationships and his language about enjoying life. These are things every person can appreciate, and we see exactly that found in verses 11 and 12 of Ecclesiastes 12. Again, speaking to that basic practicality, consider this summary. There we read that the words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned, the writing of many books is endless and excessive. Devotion to books is wearying to the body. And speaking of the practicality here in Ecclesiastes, the author here uses language of, of shepherding. He speaks of these proverbs as being like goads or being like nails. And it, it helps to know that the goads are those tools that are used to maybe urge a stubborn animal along the path. It might sting the sheep a little bit to get hit with it, but it does not injure the sheep. It simply continues to drive him down the path. So too do these proverbs. These proverbs are a sort of wake-up call in the midst of suffering that, that tell us, no, still go forward. Yes, life is difficult, but you can still do something. And so press forward, push on. Not only that, in the particular case of the believer, we also see that second use where we see that these proverbs are compared to nails. There's some debate as to what exactly the author is describing here, but I think it's just continuing the picture of a shepherd. Where having driven the sheep along with a goat, he then brings him to a pen that is held together with nails, with with wood and nails. And so the nails are used to help create boundaries, to prevent the sheep from wandering off and, and wandering into fields where they cannot be fed well. This analogy, I think, is supported by what he says about excessive learning in verse 12. Where having spoken of that basic shepherding value of these words, he says, Beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearing to the body. Now, some of us might be tempted to give a premature amen to warning against learning too much. But let us be careful to acknowledge that Solomon isn't speaking down to the concept of studying. He's simply speaking to a very real danger that exists. That danger of of having a constantly open mind, always seeking to learn, but never coming to a direct conclusion. This was not simply a problem in Solomon's day. We also hear Paul warn Timothy of the same tendency in the book of 2 Timothy. Consider these words that Paul gives regarding the dangers of false teachers in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we read in verse 6 and 7 this. For among them, that is, among these false teachers, are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul in 2 Timothy is warned about these individuals who have not yet become grounded in those basic doctrines of the faith. Paul's concern and Solomon's warning is something that we would be wise to hear in our own culture today, for we are in a culture that, that in essence praises exactly what Paul warns against. We live in a culture that praises the idea of having an open mind, of always seeking to learn more, of, of never coming down on any conclusion, because you can never know for certain what truth is. This is the mindset of our culture today, where having an open mind is a virtue. And while it is good to learn, while we should strive to be better students of the word, we also must understand that we have clear convictions and clear teachings that we must land on and land on quite firmly. We must concern, consi- consider the words of Solomon, consider the words of the famous author G.K. Chesterton as well, who, speaking of this open mind, says that the object of opening the mind as of opening the mouth is to shut it again on something solid. Elsewhere, G.K. Chesterton describes the person with a constantly open mind with the person with a constantly open mouth, just walking around. Right? You don't want to be that person. The entire point of opening your mouth is to shut it, to eat, to, to nourish yourself. In the same way, with an open mind, it is good to learn. It is good to always be open to, to different ideas, but you're always processing those ideas. You're bringing them back to the word and you're thinking, okay, what is truth? What does the word of God say? How does that compare with what the world is teaching around me? And in that manner, there is such great wisdom in looking to collections like that in Ecclesiastes 12. For it gives us plenty to consider. And yet in giving us these truths, it also gives us these basic boundaries in which we are to exist and live and move. And so particularly as believers, there is this great help and not just considering this message of Solomon but but really appreciating his method and as we appreciate the method in our own lives I think there's some valuable lessons that can be learned and and how we seek to present the truth as well aren't there for oftentimes in our culture we think our job is to simply speak the blunt truth right we think the Christian message is life is hard get over it oh and believe in Jesus too right and and so we might speak very bluntly and we might speak of the truth, but if, if we do so in this underly utilized manner of the language, I think we fail to appreciate the brilliance of what Solomon does here. I mean, why does Solomon take such great care and consideration in, in arranging these Proverbs? Why doesn't he just say, you get old and die, and that's it? Well, he doesn't do that, because he understands the value of the message. He understands that there is an essential aspect of this message that needs to be communicated. And so he does everything he can to present the message in such a way that that it attracts, that it forces people to really think through, to, to consider what is being argued. And the same thing should be true of us today. We should take great care and consideration, not just in preaching the gospel, but being very careful and meticulous in how we're presenting it. Very careful in how we're presenting these truths to the world around us. I'm not saying any of us should be speaking in such a manner to be quoted by the birds or any other band that exists now. That's not the goal. But the goal is to speak truth in a way in which it really does stick in the minds of our audience. 
in a way that even if they disagree with us, they might say, well, that's, that's beautiful. There's a certain value to what has been stated. And so as believers in particular, as we hear this painful message and as we seek maybe to give the similarly painful message to the world around us, we must also be wise to appreciate that method and to think carefully through how we can best present the truth, how we can best speak the gospel message that God has given us. All these things are good and proper and require a great deal of study. And and in all honesty, one could stop here at Ecclesiastes 12, verse 12, and have plenty to, to marinate on, plenty to think through, and plenty to apply in their own lives. But as we understand and appreciate the, the, the preacher's message, as we appreciate the, the preacher's method, we must understand that the ultimate reason why Solomon does this is not, again, to be quoted by someone else. He is not simply demonstrating just how much smarter he is than you and I. No, there's, there's a point behind every single word he has written. There's a message behind every single proverb he writes, and that message, that point is very bluntly, very clearly presented as his final conclusion. That conclusion that we would be wise to follow ourselves. Read the conclusion there in verses 13 and 14. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. The point of everything that Solomon has written. One could argue not just simply what he's written in Ecclesiastes, but the point that everything that Solomon has ever written is here in verses 13 and 14. It is that grand conclusion of fearing God and obeying God. And if you're new to the text, this might feel like a sudden shift, doesn't it? It feels like a a totally different point of view, and and for good reason. Because having examined and demonstrated the fact that there is no hope under the sun, that there is no meaning under the sun, Solomon takes one final step back for the grand reveal and points us beyond this world, beyond the sun. And he reminds us that if we are to find meaning in this life, we must look beyond this life. We must look to the giver of this life. And so that is where you find this basic command to fear God. Now as we try to understand what this means, what this looks like, we must understand first what this fear of God does mean and ultimately why does this matter? In answer to the first question of what fear of God is, we, we see that in essence summarized in verse 13. Once again, we read, the conclusion when all has been heard is, fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. Now, this language of fearing God is perhaps unfamiliar to to some of you, for this is not the sort of language we like to use in our culture today. Fearing someone makes, makes us think of something negative, something we would rather avoid. But as you read throughout all of Scripture, you see that this language of fearing God is actually quite common. And it is far removed from our own cultural understanding of fear. For in our own culture, fear is oftentimes tied to that that experience of terror. We are terrified. If we are fearful of something, it means we are trying to avoid it. But biblically speaking, the fear we have of God is not one necessarily of terror, although that can come into play. 
that fear of God stems from a basic understanding of who God is. And if you've been with us throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, you've already seen one of the reasons why we should fear God or one of the things that we must understand about God. That central point throughout Proverbs is the fact that we fear God because we know he is the creator. He is the one above all of this. And so our fear stems from the understanding that while we are finite, while we are limited, while we are foolish, while we will die, there is this eternal being, this God who has created all of this. He exists above the sun. It is his will that is ultimately going to be accomplished. We read this already in, verse, in chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes. In fact, if you will turn back to Ecclesiastes 3 and and be reminded again of why we fear God. There in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, Solomon says, He, that is God, has made everything appropriate in its time. He also said eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. What we understand from Ecclesiastes is that our proper understanding of God must include this understanding of, of God as our creator. We fear God, we respect God because we understand he is infinitely higher than we are. We understand his knowledge is infinitely greater than our knowledge. And so we fear him, we respect him for that fact. But even beyond Ecclesiastes, we understand that the people of God in particular have an even perhaps greater reason to fear, to revere God. That second reason is because God has redeemed his people. You can see this very clearly if you turn back to Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, you find the same language of fear, connected both to the idea of God being creator as well as God being a redeemer. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, he says, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, To the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples as it is to this day. This passage is so helpful because, again, it not only speaks of fearing God, but it also reminds the people of God why. Why fear God? Well, because he created everything. He's above all everything, and on top of that, because he's chosen you, Israel, he's chosen you, people of God, and so we respect him, we love him, we serve him out of that love. The great reformer of the church, Martin Luther, spoke much of this fear, and he describes it, or he he defines it as filial fear or family fear. It's the fear not of a, a victim under the hand of its tormentor, it's the fear of a son for his father. Understanding the strength of his father, understanding the love of his father, understanding the discipline that will come from his father. And so the grand conclusion, as Solomon says here, is in light of our own limited nature, in light of who we are, we fear God, and the basic application of that is we obey him. That's what it means to fear him. And so we revere him, we respect him, we obey him. And yet, even as we do that, there is still a tendency amongst all of us to to ask, well, why does this even matter? Why waste the few moments I have here on earth to follow some God that I do not yet see? This is, in fact, the temptation of every person. 
And it is in light of that that Solomon speaks to that second question of why this matters. For in verse 14 we read, For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Here really is the entire reason why we studied Ecclesiastes. Here is the only reason to study Ecclesiastes to drive us past this life and to set our eyes on eternity. For Solomon says that is what is constantly to be on your mind in everything you do. For he says, the same God that created you, the same God that redeems his people, will judge you. He will judge you. And this is one of those truths that is so so tempting to overlook. And yet again, as we spoke from the very beginning, we may not realize that without this judgment, all meaning is lost in this life. It's only with judgment that anything has been given meaning. And we do not have time to exhaust the the picture of judgment that the Bible gives us. But broadly speaking, you, you can think of two basic judgments that take place. One judgment, described in passages like Revelation 20 or Matthew 25, describes that judgment between believers and unbelievers. Jesus is very clear in his teaching in Matthew. God is very clear in Revelation that in the end, God will judge believer and unbeliever. The unbelievers will be cast aside and will be cast into hell based off the rejection of Christ. The end. That is the judgment for unbelievers. And so it matters how you respond to God because if he's not pleased with how you respond, if you reject his rule, well, that might be fine for you now, but you're going to be damned. That is the judgment that comes with the warning. But as believers, we must also understand that that this judgment still holds both a word of warning as well as encouragement to us. For while we are saved from hell, those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, we must understand that people like the Apostle Paul also spoke very clearly to the role that our own judgment plays in our daily life. In your time this week, I encourage you to read through books like 1 and 2 Corinthians that that are filled with this language of judgment. And these passages, like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul speaks of the fact that all of our deeds will be weighed out, all of these things will be judged. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, he says, or just verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what has been done, whether good or bad. Both believer and unbeliever alike will be judged. For the believer, the judgment comes in response to the rejection of Christ, or the unbeliever is the rejection of Christ. For the believer, it's a judgment of what we do. Both good and bad, all of these things are brought before our creator, brought before our judge. And of course, there is both a word of warning and encouragement to this, isn't there? The warning, I think, is quite obvious. Just as Paul warns the believers in Corinth, what you do, the sins you commit, really do matter, believer. The life of the believer is not simply confess faith in Jesus Christ and then do whatever you want the rest of your life. No, no, it matters far more than that. Our sins are still offensive before God, and while they've been covered perfectly by the blood of Jesus Christ, praise God for that, they are still an offense before our God. And God still sees those things. This is why we must take very seriously the warnings that are given in books like Ecclesiastes. This is why we must be very careful in how we respond to the government. 
Why we must be very, very careful of how we speak to others. Very, very careful in how we love our spouses. Very, very careful in how we speak of our parents or teachers. Very, very careful in everything we do for God sees these things. And in that, of course, is great warning. Yet in that also is is a word of great encouragement, isn't it? For just as God sees both your major and minor sins, God also sees your major and minor acts of, of kindness. God sees those things. God sees the way you you speak kindly to other people. God sees the way that that you are striving to avoid temptation, to get past temptation, and God is pleased by that. And we are told that there is this recompense, there is this response by God to it in eternity. And so as believers, as we come to the end of, of Ecclesiastes, there is both this word of warning, but also a word of promise, and in this, there is this meaning that we've been searching for. For in conclusion, Solomon says, despite how chaotic this world looks, despite how meaningless it all seems, there is meaning in every single thing you do, in every single thought that comes across your head. There's meaning to it. There's purpose. Because it's not done for this world, it's done for the world that is yet to come. It is done for the one who is eternal. And so as we consider these things, as we consider this meaning, the question, of course, is what what meaning are you living for, brother and sister? What is motivating every thought that comes across your head? What is motivating every deed you, you strive to accomplish when you wake up in the morning? Tragically, we live in a world that is devoid of this meaning. We live in a world that is desperately trying to find all hope in this life. Again, if you doubt that, just simply look at the last election and you see this obsession with that which is temporary. You see people being broken down because of that which is temporary. That is the world in which we live and we can understand why unbelievers do that. I can certainly understand why an unbeliever puts all hope in this life because it's all they know. But unbeliever, if you're here this morning, please know that there is something better waiting for you or something far worse waiting for you. But the decision's yours. You can either place all your hope in this life and go to hell or you can repent of your sin, put all your faith in the eternal God and and be given a life that actually lasts, life that is actually eternal and I beg you, unbeliever, do that today. Do that at this moment. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, it is important that we learn from the example of Solomon, that we learn from his message. We must be careful to remember that we cannot place our hope in this world as tempting as it is at times. We must learn from the method of Solomon and be careful of how we present this truth to the world around us. Are we presenting it in a beautiful way, in a loving way, in a gracious way? If we're not doing so, we're failing to approach it in a wise manner. In response to all this, let us do all of these things, not in light of what this world will give us, but in light of what stands for us in eternity. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're like me, this promise of of judgment is downright crippling at times, isn't it? Because let's face it, we all fail miserably every single day. And if we are standing in judgment based entirely on our own deeds, we are all hopeless. But please do not misunderstand the concept of judgment from Solomon. Please do not misunderstand what we are saying here today. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the reason why we can find meaning in this life or meaning in the midst of this life 
the reason why we can even look at the day of judgment with a smile is because we understand that regardless of how much we failed in this life, that we are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And let us thank God that unlike every other religion that judges you based off of how much good you've done for God, we follow a God that has already done it all for us on our behalf, for him, for his glory. And so let us take solace in that. Let us take comfort in that. Let us live every single day, not for today, but in light of that eternal destiny that awaits us. Let me close our time in prayer. Father in heaven, God, there's so much in this text, God. We don't have even time to touch today. God, so much more could be said of judgment. So much more could be said of how we can redeem the time here. But I pray that you might bless all that has been said already this morning, God. I pray that all of us might be reminded of why we live this life, God. I pray that none of us place our hope in this world, but all of us place our hope in you who have created it, God. As always, I pray for unbelievers, God. I pray for their salvation. Save them, God. And for my brothers and sisters in Christ, let us be very careful in how we speak and how we live. Let us be humbled by the fact that we are sinners, but let us praise you for the fact that we are also made saints. Jesus, come and take us away from this world soon, we pray. God, bring your judgment upon this world. Save us, deliver us, God. But as we await for that day, Lord, might we do so taking advantage of every conversation we have, taking advantage of every opportunity we have to represent you and represent your son, in whose name we pray these things, amen.